recorded live. Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Chris Degenia Saturdays. Today is Saturday, December 21st, 2012. Thank you for listening, and praise Yahweh. I want to take this occasion to thank everybody who supports ChrisDegenia.org and our endeavors here from month to month. ChrisDegenia.org would not be possible without you. I would like to say, and, and I'm, I'm, I don't, I'm, I'm not bragging, I'm just going to um, state some facts about our website traffic and how many people we, we reach so that the people that do support our endeavors understand and, and see um, what they're helping to, to propagate. Christogenia.org, according to Google Analytics, in the month of November, had 19,980 visitors. The main website, according to my website server, and, and the statistics, the professional statistics package that keeps my statistics there, the main website attracted almost 17,000 of those visitors. The other 2,000 and change, or, or nearly 3,000 visitors, visit sites at Christagenia other than the main site. And there are a lot of people that go to the Saxon Messenger site or go to the MindConf Project website who do not visit the main website. 54,692 podcasts were downloaded from Christagenia.org alone last month. They are solely, exclusively Christogenia content downloaded from the main website. I praise Yahweh for that. And that humbles me. A combined 24,000 podcasts were downloaded from the MindConf project and from the Saxon Messenger sites. Not all of those are Christogenia content since MindConf, um, the book and audio files is available there. And, and there are other books and, and writings and, and things available at the Saxon Messenger site, such as audio podcasts of um, the writings of Tacitus the Historian, Nennius the British Historian, Aesop's Fables, and things like that. And, and some of those podcasts belong to those. So, so they're not all Christogeny content, but most of them actually are. So... That, in a nutshell, is how many people Christogenia reaches each month. Tonight, we're going to do something a little different. We're going to present um, a speech by Joseph Goebbels entitled The Year 2000. That's first. And, and after that, I'm going to have a general discussion with Sword Brethren, who's here with me tonight. Hello, Brian. Hello, how are you? And, and we're going to speak about how important it is that identity Christians understand and sympathize with National Socialist Germany. If you don't sympathize with National Socialist Germany, you, you basically, um, you're misdirected, you're, you're, you have bought a certain amount of Jewish propaganda, you have not cleaned out the old leaven of the world, and you have a lack of basic brotherly love. And, and I can safely assert all those things. I, I've been criticized in the last two weeks 
by two people who pretend to be Christian identity pastors. Um, one of those I used to work with, and the other one, I'm not going to mention his name because I'm not going to um, give him the credibility and the publicity. He, he's basically a clown on Facebook, but he also has a Christian identity website and professes certain Christian identity beliefs along with or, or in company with a whole lot of strange new age beliefs such as the hollow earth theory and UFOs and, 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 um, and, and it goes beyond that. It, it goes well beyond that. And I'll leave it at that. Both of these people, one of these people is a rabid anti-socialist who makes the grave error of confusing national socialism with Marxist socialism and, and, and the neo-socialism that we see practiced throughout the West today. Traditional socialism and national socialism have very little to do or, or, or very little in common with Marxist socialism. That's first. The second person who, who has criticized me has had the audacity to label me as a neo-Nazi even though he himself has spoken at um, rallies that were hosted by the National Socialist Movement, which is a neo-Nazi political party and, and actually a pretty, um, in some ways, a pretty shabby organization, which is um, based, I, I think, somewhere in, in Illinois or Indiana. I'm really not familiar. Not familiar. Actually, I think that the last rally he spoke at was in Wisconsin, West Dallas, Wisconsin, I believe that was, and that was last year. So he speaks at neo-Nazi rallies and then calls me a neo-Nazi and criticizes me for it. And, and that's, that. there's two, and, and there are, I know, and I understand that there are a lot of people in Christian identity who still buy a lot of the Jewish paradigm concerning Adolf Hitler and National Socialism. Some of them do it because they're, they're, that they're Anglophiles or, or they're um, uh, America files, that, that they're lovers of, of America and flag wavers and patriots in the false sense of the word. And, and basically, if you... Um, Look at what Adolf Hitler did in Germany. He freed Germany from the tyranny of the bankers. He freed tyranny from the he, he freed Germany from the globalists. He got Germany out of the economic slavery imposed by the international bankers. He got Germany out of the debt and inflation cycle, what which is caused by the international bankers. He, he got Germany out from under the depression and the massive unemployment, the, the hunger, the, the, um, the homelessness, which was occurring all over the Western world, which was imposed by the Jewish international bankers. He got Germany on a non-usury based, a, a currency that was not based on usury, which is Christian, and, and usury based currencies are anti-Christian. He got rid of the pornographers. He got rid of the, 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 um, the promotion of sexual deviancy and drug use that was rife in, in Weimar, Germany. 
And basically, that means getting rid of many of the Jews. That's what Adolf Hitler did in 1932, 33, 34, 35, 36 in Germany. Americans and, and Britons or Englishmen gladly signed up to go overseas and destroy Christian Germany, and Germany was a Christian nation, and Adolf Hitler's National Socialism reflected sound Christian policies. And we happily engaged in the destruction of that nation at the behest of the same international Jews who have us shackled in economic slavery to this very day. Now, those Americans and those Englishmen were heavily propagandized, but identity Christians claim to have broken, for the most part, to have broken the yoke of that propaganda. They claim a higher cognizance. They claim to understand the truth. Well, if they despise Germany, if they despise Adolf Hitler and National Socialist Germany, they're kidding themselves. Brian, do you have anything to add? Wow. It seems that a lot of people out there, they've soaked up more Jewish propaganda than they're willing to admit or than they, they even would consciously realize. And they detest Germany because they've gone to the public school system and they've seen all the John Wayne movies and they've come away with the idea that Americans, good, Germans, bad. And World War II was the great fight that made America a great nation and we somehow saved the world. But look at the world today. It's a mess. It's an upside down inversion. It's a nightmare. So I just think that the article that I think James Miller out of uh, California, the physics PhD, about what would have happened if Hitler had won World War II, there would have been no Korea, no, Viet no, no war in Vietnam, no Mao Zedong, communism would have been destroyed in the 40s, and we'd be living in a much cleaner, safer, happier world. Well, well right. Britain, Britain um, may have done a lot better if Hitler had won World War II in, in the 60s and 70s. America may have done a lot better if Hitler had won World War II because we'd have turned in and searched for the reasons why Germany was so successful and why America failed. And that's what the Jew and all of his propaganda, that the Jew labels Jesus a Jew so that Real white people, real white men, white men that still have testosterone in their scrotums, white men that still have backbones, don't look at the Bible because Jesus is a Jew and who the hell wants to listen to a Jew? White men, therefore, will never have the understanding of the Jew because that's what Christ provides. Christ helps us to understand the enemy. If we get nothing else from the New Testament, we should understand that the Jews are evil and they're the destroyers of society everywhere and that they're society's greatest hypocrites and always have been. If white men believed that Hitler was a Jew, which many of the Jews in the so-called, um, well, well, in the so-called truth movement would like you to believe and, and which fools like Jim Condit and a million other clowns readily follow along with. If white men believe that Hitler was a Jew, 
then there's absolutely no reason to look into Hitler's social policies, into Hitler's economic policies, into how Hitler performed, or pulled off, I should say, that the economic and social miracle that he did in National Socialist Germany, in having so many millions of people, probably, I'm going to guess and say 75 million people, practice true patriotism, not phony flag patriotism, true racial patriotism, because in order to be patriotic with somebody, you have to have a common patriarch and rebuild that nation from the ashes of World War I and the Weimar Republic and do it happily and create an, an, an economic mecca and, and a manufacturing miracle and an industrial miracle in the middle of a continent which was enslaved by the international Jewish bankers and shackled with the Great Depression. If Americans had only seen the glory that was Nazi Germany in 1936 and related it to the fact that Germany wasn't under the psalms of the international bankers, while America was in the middle of a depression in 1936, because we were under the thumbs of the international. If Americans had put two and two together at that time, they too should have sought to throw off the shackles of the international bankers. They should have begged to be Nazis. Well, part of the problem there lies in the fact that Germany was less than 1% Jewish, and in the 30s, America was probably 5 or 6% Jewish. There were a lot more Jews in America than any other country in the world. Well, I hate to tell you something, but America was probably 15 or 20% Jewish because we are now. The, the Jews claim that the Jews actually published that New York and, and New Jersey and Florida and certain states that have high concentrations of Jews, they admit to 5 or 6% there. And they'll claim 2 to 3% in most other places in the country. And, and the truth is... The truth is that Jews are not counted in any census and that the numbers are only rough estimates compiled from what's esteemed to be how many people attend synagogues. And, and Jews, most Jews, don't attend synagogues. And, that, and that's the bottom line. And for that reason, the Jewish population is heavily underestimated. So the Jews have really thrived in this country, then, haven't they? Well, well, absolutely. There are many more Jews than, than the numbers that they claim in, in our population today. The first thing we're going to present tonight is a speech by Joseph Goebbels entitled The Year 2000. I've been wanting to present this speech for quite some time. Mostly because Winston Churchill became famous for the idea of the Iron Curtain and Joseph Goebbels was what was warning us about the Iron Curtain that the Soviets would destroy nations behind long before Winston Churchill ever pronounced the idea. Winston Churchill plagiarized the idea the Jewish media made Churchill, um, made it one of his more famous speeches 
And all he did was plagiarize the idea and the understanding from Joseph Goebbels. Now, this idea had appeared in German propaganda for quite some time before February of 1945 when Joseph Goebbels gave this speech. I'm going to read the background. This speech is from the translation found at the German Propaganda Archive by, at calvin.edu, and, and most of that material was translated by a gentleman who goes by the name of Randall Bytework. B-Y-T-E-W-E-R-K, I think he spells it. I might be wrong. Now, now this is um, the background which he gives, and he says that here Goebbels takes on the role of prophet. Imaging the, imagining the world two generations after German victory, the war was nearing its end, but Goebbels seeks to persuade his fellow citizens that victory is still possible. I think it goes deeper than that. Goebbels uses the phrase an iron curtain to describe the results of the Soviet Union's advance into Europe, a phrase later made famous by Winston Churchill. Bitework doesn't want to go as far as to say that Churchill just plagiarized it, but that's actually what happened. Goebbels was not the first to use the phrase, but his use brought it to prominence. Well, Goebbels had used the phrase very early in German propaganda, probably before 1943, I believe. And, and um, it appeared very often in German propaganda materials from 43 through 45. The source for this is Das Reich and an article published in that publication called Das Jahr 2000, the year 2000, on February 25th, 1945. Brian, do you have any opening remarks? I have some opening remarks, but I... Of course, Churchill gets all the credit for it because if they if they let people know Goebbels came up with this first or Goebbels popularized this in Germany, people might go read Goebbels and look at Goebbels and wonder, whoa, the Nazis were warning us about communists. Maybe they were on to something. And we, we can't have that. You know, the, the Jews can't have that. Society can't allow that. The flag wavers can't have that. We have to give it to Churchill because Churchill's the good mainstream kosher conservative who – He's there to crush Nazism and communism because he just believes in freedom so much. Well, Goebbels is right. Goebbels' assertion is that the Soviet Union would set up an Iron Curtain to keep the, the West and, and, and to isolate all of the territory that it controls behind which it would destroy nations. That's exactly what, so, that's exactly what Bolshevism does. But let me present my opening remarks, and, and, and perhaps I'm sure you'll have a response to some of these. Goebbels, and, and Bightwork considers Goebbels, you know, he says he's taking on the role of a prophet here, and, and that's true to an extent, but Goebbels was really not a prophet by any means. A lot of his predictions here did not pan out in history. In my opinion, Goebbels both underestimated the power of the Jewish bankers and the degree of control they had over the nations involved, and he overestimated the ability of the Western white man to confront and contain the Jew. For two centuries now, the Jew has been able to rule over white men, and there's a variety of reasons for that, most of them having to do with the will of God. What we see here is that Goebbels did understand, and I think I'll enumerate what I saw as the high points in this article, and, and, and what they reveal, even if Goebbels didn't ex state them explicitly, right? 
Goebbels did understand what course certain men and nations would take, but he only knew that because he understood the nature of those things which he could see. He understood the nature of Stalin and the nature of Bolshevism. He understood the treachery of the Jew and the evils of communism. And we saw that here two years ago when we presented his paper, Communism with the Mask Off. He understood that Western leaders were working against the interests of their own people. He understood the vision of Stalin compared to the slothful, short-sighted ways of Churchill and Roosevelt. He understood that Stalin was a continuation of Bolshevism. Stalin continued Bolshevism. He was not an answer to it, as so many foolish apologists claim today. Goebbels understood that Europe would eventually be united. He understood that regardless of the outcome of the war, the West would have to take a stand against communism. He also understood that regardless of the outcome of the war, England would lose its empire. Most remarkably, and I believe that this is to his credit, yet, you know, Beitwerk is not a German apologist. He is not a lover of Hitler and Goebbels. I think he's done some very fair and good translations in the German propaganda archive. And, and from what I've seen, I don't see any enemy propaganda. What I mean by enemy is Jewish propaganda laced into the words of, of Goebbels and Hitler which, as they're translated in, in Randall Beitwerk's work on the German propaganda archive. So I don't see any treachery. However, he is a lover of, of, of um, the capitalist system that he works for, and that, that's evident. He, he loves the, 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 um, the allied cause, let's put it that way. And, and he despises, he's not a friend of, of National Socialist Germany whatsoever. That, that's the, the, the impression I get from all of his work. Well, well where Beitwerk sees that Goebbels is being a propagandist, I see that Goebbels, like Hitler did, right up to the end of the war, that they actually still held to the hope that Germany would prevail. They had a faith that Germany would prevail, and that faith came from a belief that Germany was on the side of right and that justice had to prevail. His faith, the, the faith in justice was good, and Germany was indeed on the side of right. However, I would say God had other plans, and vengeance belongs to Yahweh our God. That, that's my opening remarks, and, and I don't... If you have anything you want to discuss. Well, remember when we did the Weeby series, we discussed how there were anti-Semitic laws being put into place in Hungary, Bulgaria, Romania. It seems interesting that when the Iron Curtain came down across Europe, all of these nations in southern and eastern Europe that had risen up against Jews, they were on the wrong side of this Iron Curtain. So now the Soviets were able to butcher them and oppress them with total, you know, immunity. Impunity, you mean? Yeah, impunity. Both, actually, because they never, they never seem to be held accountable for their crimes. However, there is a judge, and he will hold them accountable for their crimes. Right, but the, the, the Western audiences had no idea what was going on. They... They watch movies where American superheroes are shooting German soldiers, and they see newsreel footage, you know, why we fight, with all the, the propaganda and all the crap about, you know, Japanese and German atrocities, but they never hear a peep about what the Soviets are doing. 
I don't know if I could get my email program up right now. Um, Thunderbird is a real hassle. Thunderbird is absolutely the, it's become the worst email program in the world. It's horrible. It crashes 90% of the time. I think, you know, of course I was thinking impunity as well, but in the sense that there was no Nuremberg trial for the Soviet Bolshevik Jewish commissars who massacred the Polish officers and then who massacred people in Romania and Hungary, they basically did have immunity and impunity. Well, well, my email program seems like it's hanging again, and, and that's what it does just about every other time I start it. There's a, there's a Montclair State University in New Jersey. There's a college professor, and David Bailey brought this to my attention, who is denying that Stalin killed anybody during his entire reign in the USSR. Stalin is guilty of no war crimes, Nobody was killed under the Stalin regime in the USSR. This man is teaching this to his students at, at Montclair State University in New Jersey. And, and David Bailey had written to this man, and, and since David had provided his email address, I also took the liberty of writing this man. And, and he wrote me back. He answered me, but he was steadfast. I'm wrong. He, he looked for evidence for how many years and he never found any evidence that Stalin killed anybody. Well, I don't know where he's looking for evidence. I guess he's looking for it in the pages of the New York Times. Uh, I'm going to write him back again. I made a post and posted my original letter, and I may have posted his response. Let, let me look. In the modern history section of the Christogenia Forum. And this, this, guy, this gentleman, this creature, is a professor. Yes, I did. I have it here, so I don't need my email program. I apologize. There's a video on a Christogenia forum under the modern history section, and, and it's the top post in the section because it's the most recent. It's entitled, Radical New Jersey Professor Promoting Joseph Stalin. Dr. Grover Furter is an English professor at Montclair State University. Here he is seen hero-worshipping Joseph Stalin. There's actually a video posted of him. And, and, and when asked about the mass murder of civilians by Stalin, first screams profanities and says Stalin never killed anyone. Some brainwashed students actually cheer Dr. Fur. So I took the liberty, um, following David Bailey's lead, of writing um, this Douglas Fur character, this professor. And I said, I have just seen your comments on YouTube concerning Stalin. You have obviously poisoned, poisoned the minds of many New Jersey youth with your lies concerning this communist dictator. There is a plethora of documentation recording the crimes committed under the murderous rule of not only Stalin, but his Bolshevik predecessors as well. You, sir, are a whore for the devil and an accomplice to all the world's evil. And, and that's exactly what I told him. He responded, and, and I've yet to respond to his response, but he responded, Dear Mr. Fink, you are in error. I have studied the evidence. Uh, I don't know how you could study the evidence if you don't leave your nice, cushy office at Montclair. This is the only way to discover the truth. There is no other way. Specifically, now, now let me say that this man's an English professor, right? He's not a historian. Specifically, one can never discover the truth by believing an authority, no matter who that authority may be. Even honest authorities make mistakes. Well, we all know that. He's just taking advantage of that and using it as a device to make his argument. You know, because 
the establishment says Stalin killed all these people. It, it must be false because the establishment admitted it. So everything the establishment admits is false, right? It is clear from your remarks that you do not grasp the ele- this elementary principle. Well, well, how does he know that I don't grasp that? I certainly do. What is not just... Well, what is not just interesting but fascinating is this. I have studied the so-called crimes of Stalin for many years. I have yet to find a single one of them that is supported by evidence. That, that's his statement. That's what I said in the talk, and that is true. I have tried, I have looked, and so far have found no evidence. Now that is a discovery of interest. And, and that's where he left it, and, and I'm going to respond to him, but I'll probably wait a couple of weeks and put something um, decent together, but I know that I'm not going to say anything that's going to convince this man. So, so that's the, that's the state of American academia today. I, I mean, Douglas Furs is just, or Grover Fur, I'm sorry, it is just one college professor. But in in the um, the 19 teens, 20s, and 30s, there were thousands of American journalists singing the praises of the workman's paradise and, and, and simply following along the lead of, of a few Bolshevik sympathizers in the major media outlets like the New York Times. So I'm curious, how does this clown address the purging of Yagoda and Yezov? Because I can show you a picture where Yezov is standing next to Stalin, and then when they reissued the picture, he's been photo- or, um, removed. Obviously, they didn't have Photoshopped him. Today, they would have Photoshopped him out, but they used whatever technique they had back then to remove him. How does he address the trial of the 21, any of the great you know, show trials in Moscow in 36 to 38? Does he just ignore that entirely? Well, well I don't know where he looks for evidence. I'm going to ask him. Uh, I'm eventually going to ask him, where did you look for this evidence? You, you said you searched for evidence. I, I mean, you, you could go to Indiana and search for evidence for 50 years about the murders of Mao Zedong and never find a thing, right? Uh, I mean, where did he search for this evidence? Well, where, how do you search for evidence for, in, in a regime and, and that had 50 years to cover its crimes? And I wonder, did he go to Moscow and look in the archives of the KGB, which are more or less available now? What we have seen, even from Viktor Suvorov, but, but it's evident in, in other sources, you know, when Adolf Hitler held meetings, he had several stenographers, he had people recording his every move, he had people recording his every word, all of his meetings what were announced, the locations were announced, people knew where he would be, everything was above board, that's what I'm trying to say. When Joseph Stalin had meetings, he, he conducted his national business like a mob boss in New York conducts his, his, his mafia gang. The meetings were in back rooms, smoke-filled rooms, and, and, and there were no stenographers. That there were no, Nobody was taking a word out of there. There were no tape recorders. There was nothing. It, it was all done just like a mob boss would conduct his business. That's probably how um, Stalin used to plan his train robberies and bank robberies, so he just carried all that over when he became the leader. Well, well absolutely. He, he was a criminal. He acted like a criminal. And, and, and that's why there's no evidence of, of his atrocities, but because nothing was recorded. And, and, and here, I, I would like to ask Grover about the Holocaust, because Hitler recorded everything, and there's no forensic evidence supporting the Holocaust. I may just take that tactic when I write him back and say, oh, so you, don't, so, so you deny the Holocaust too? 
Because there's absolutely not one shred of forensic evidence supporting the Holocaust story. Any of it. None. Zero. And there's no documentary evidence. None. Zero. I think it merits mentioning that Grover Fur has done an interview with a website called RevLeft, you know, the revolutionary left. He's given them interviews. And Grover Fur has also published work in socialist and communist journals. So I would say at the very least he's a fellow traveler. Well, well, right. Well, my, my, my point was to show how, how they operate and, and that there were plenty of them in the 1920s and 30s in this country. There were thousands of Grover Furs who, who were singing the praises of the workman's paradise of Soviet Russia. Now, if the media, if the mass media, I mean the mass media, if the mass media informs us that Joseph Goebbels was warning about the atrocities happening behind the, this Iron Curtain all the way back in, in the 30s and 40s, then they would have to admit knowing of those atrocities and supporting them because they sang the praises of Stalin throughout the entire um, allied relationship with Stalin right up until the 1950s probably, or, or at least the late 40s, well, when suddenly the Soviet Union became our worst enemy. And, and Churchill gave his Iron Curtain speech, and, and he gets all the credit for, for identifying what, what, what was going on behind it. And, and actually, they should have known long before this. So, so they can't give Joseph Goebbels any credit for warning us about the Soviet Union. They can't. But because it, 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 it would be clearly manifest that they're liars and they're hypocrites. That, that's my original point. Well, I think Grover, I'd like to read just one quote from Grover from this interview he gave with the revolutionary left. He declares, quote, Lenin and Stalin were brilliant men sincerely dedicated to the goal of communism, devoted to the working class. They had no personal ambitions except to try to bring about the society of justice and equality, which the communist movement has always stood for, and that the working people of the world desperately, desperately needed then and still do, end quote. So Grover Fur is just a communist falsifier of history. Well, well right, but he is also um, reminiscent uh, of thousands of academics and journalists in the 1920s and 30s. Right. Well, as Yuri Bezmenov, KGB defector, said, these sort of ideas are popular with Western intellectuals who aren't nearly as intellectual as they'd like to think. Absolutely. I think we have a mountain of evidence from defectors, be they um, Suvorov, Bezmenov, there's plenty of them that paint a very accurate picture of the totalitarian communist regime. But there's still people today that want to praise old Uncle Joe. Would you like to proceed with the year 2000 by Dr. Joseph Goebbels? Certainly. The year 2000. The three enemy war leaders, American sources report, have agreed at the Yalta Conference to Roosevelt's proposal for an occupation program that will destroy and exterminate the German people up until the year 2000. One must grant that somewhat the somewhat grandiose nature of the proposal. It reminds one of the skyscrapers in New York that soar high into the sky and whose upper stories sway in the wind. What will the world look like in the year 2000? 
Stalin, Churchill, and Roosevelt has, have determined, it, at least insofar as the German people are concerned. One may, however, doubt if they and we will act in the predicted manner. No one can predict the distant future, but there are some facts and possibilities that are clear over the coming 50 years. For example, none of the three enemy statesmen who developed this brilliant plan will still be alive. England will have at most 20 million inhabitants. Our children's children will have had children, and the events of this war will have sunk into myth. One can also predict with a high degree of certainty that Europe will be a united continent in the year 2000. One will fly from Berlin to Paris for breakfast in 15 minutes, and our most modern weapons will be seen as antiques, and much more. Germany, however, will still be under military occupation according to the plans of the Yalta Conference, and the English Americans will be training its people in democracy. How empty the brains of these three charlatans must be, at least in the case of two of them. The third, Stalin, follows much more far-reaching goals than his two comrades. He certainly does not plan to announce them publicly, but he and his 200 million slaves will fight bitterly and toughly for them. He sees the world differently than do those plutocratic brains. He sees a future in which the entire world is subjected to the dictatorship of the Moscow Internationale, which means the Kremlin. His dream may seem fantastic and absurd, but if we Germans do not stop him, it will undoubtedly become reality. And here we are today. That will happen as follows. If the German people lay down their weapons, the Soviets, according to the agreement between Roosevelt, Churchill, and Stalin, would occupy all of East and Southeast Europe along with the greater part of the Reich. An iron curtain would fall over this enormous territory controlled by the Soviet Union behind which nations would be slaughtered. The Jewish press in London and New York would probably still be applauding. All that would be left is human raw material, a stupid fermenting mass of millions of desperate proletarianized working animals who would only know what the Kremlin wanted them to know about the rest of the world. Without leadership, they would fall helplessly into the hands of the Soviet blood dictatorship. The remainder of Europe would fall into chaotic political and social confusion that would prepare the way for the Bolshevization that will follow. Life and existence in these nations would become hell, which was, after all, the point of the exercise. Well, well, let's take a break. Let's take a break there. What, what do you think he's referring to in the first paragraph must be the Morgenthau plan? Absolutely. Well, which he, he must have gotten a wind of um, probably right away, right? as soon as there were plans to implement it. I don't know exactly when the Morgenthau plan was announced. I don't think the Morgenthau plan was publicly announced in that they thought it would increase German resolve and resistance. But if I recall, the Morgenthau plan was originally concocted in late 1944 after D-Day. I think it was, well, well right, September 1944. Okay. And it explicitly prohibited U.S. occupying authorities from providing any reconstruction assistance to the German people or any sort of economic assistance. So their goal was to basically starve the Germans to death, to destroy all of their industry, their logistics, their fertilizer plants, so the land wouldn't produce enough crops. And, and, it, had, and it had delineated, it, it had split Germany in half, right, into east and west. Basically, the way it, it, it was split after the war. Absolutely, and I find that interesting. He mentions 
Europe as a united continent. And with the EU, that's largely been achieved, hasn't it? Well, well, yes, it has been achieved. And, and, and yes, I said that in my opening notes, that, that he envisioned a united Europe. Uh, I mean, I'm sure it didn't happen the way he had hoped it would happen, but he did envision a united Europe. And obviously, his prediction about modern weapons becoming antiques, well, that happens with every generation, doesn't it? I mean, if we look in 1910 and go back 50 years, the most modern weapons in the Civil War were antiques by, you know, two or three generations later. Right. It, it wasn't that um, Adolf Hitler and, and National Socialist Germany, they had no plans whatsoever to conquer Europe. I believe they simply thought that it would be inevitable in order to fend off the, the, the Soviet Bolshevik threat, the, the Bolshevik, which wasn't only external, it was internal as well. That they understood Bolshevism and, and how it worked internally because they had direct experience with that after the First World War. What when the Bolshevik Republic was set up in in, in Bavaria? What when the um, the communists tried to take over Hamburg? What when the Free Corps, what which was basically the German militia at the time, threw them all out? That they had direct experience with, with, with Bolshevism and how the Jews operated and, and how they corrupted a, a state from within and agitated so that they could take over its government. Well, interestingly enough, about the Bavarian Soviet Republic, when the city of Munich was being surrounded and they were getting ready to crush the Bavarian Soviet Republic, when the German army and the Freikorps came in to crush the, the um, uprising, the Jews inside the city decided to start murdering hostages and they ordered German communist militants to murder the hostages, but they refused. So they brought in Soviet Red Guard Bolsheviks to do it. They, they cabled Lenin, and Lenin agreed that he would send them some you know, gunmen because they, they realized that the Germans weren't willing to execute men, women, and children. Right. So there were actually members of the Red Guards in Munich in 1919. Well, well right. They even, yeah, you know, a lot of people, and, and Douglas Reed, and, and this is, um, I wrote about this on the Mein Kampf Project website the day after the um, discussion or debate or however you want to term it what with Jim Condit. Douglas Reed and Otto Strasser made it a point to remark, and, and, and it was actually quite deceptive, that Hitler must have been a, a, a communist because he was in the, the, the army in Bavaria during the time of the Bavarian Soviet Republic. And the truth is that while Hitler was a member of the regular army, that the communist leaders of the Bavarian Soviet Republic ignored the regular army and did not employ it. They had their own army and partially supplied by Stalin, as you just mentioned. So that's just... That's very academically dishonest to claim that since Hitler was a member of the National Army and stationed in a province that was in a, a revolt, that he must have been part of the revolt. Well, he was part of crushing the revolt. And, and that's the first lie of Otto Strasser in, 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 in the book that Douglas Reed had based upon the, the lies of Otto Strasser, basically. That, that article is posted at the Mein Kampf site. That they 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 um made that point exactly, Brian. All right. Would you like to take over for the next few lines?
Aside from the domestic problems of economic, social, and political nature, England would suffer declining population that would leave it even less able to defend its interest in Europe and the rest of the world than it is today, meaning in 1945. In 1948, Roosevelt's campaign for re-election would fail, just as Wilson's did after the First World War. And the Republican isolationist would become president of the USA. You know, here, I believe that, um, that this is where Goebbels gave the American male too much credit, that, that, that they could actually elect a Republican isolationist, that they would actually elect somebody who would, um, who, who would promote the traditional interests of the United States, which are isolationism. The, the traditional interests of the United States are isolationist. George Washington had warned us about getting involved in foreign wars, in those European wars that he understood what were instigated by the bankers. George Washington warned us about it uh, when he left office in, in the 1790s. And for over a hundred years, we well, well, until Theodore Roosevelt, I think, and until the Spanish Civil War, I'm sorry, the Spanish-American War, what we basically um, did not get involved in foreign wars at all, except um, Thomas Jefferson's sending of the Marines to crush some of the pirates and in, in the, the Arab pirates in, in the Mediterranean Sea, but which I think even that was wrong because that was and the employment of um, national troops funded by the government for, on behalf of the defense of private merchants. Barbary Coast pirates. Yes. And even Thomas Jefferson did that. I believe that was wrong. It was basically unconstitutional to employ U.S military resources to defend private merchants. That, that's not right. That, that's, that, that's the first step of this nation towards, towards globalism, international commerce. Goebbels is failing to understand just how much the American people were in love with all the goodies and freebies that Roosevelt was giving them. If Roosevelt hadn't died, he would have won probably a fifth and a sixth and a seventh term. He was basically going to be president for life, wasn't he? Well, well, I, I, you know that's hard to say. That that's hard to to um, look back on and 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 predict. It, it's um, yeah, you don't know what the political climate would have been in 1948 if Roosevelt had finished his even his fourth term. I mean, he was elected to 16 years, which is absurd. Well, well, yes, it is absurd. He served 13 years too long. In 1948, Roosevelt's campaign for re-election would fail just as Wilson's did after the First World War, and the Republican isolationists would become president of the USA if we only had that happen in 1938. His first official act would likely be, or 36, right, would likely be to withdraw American troops from Europeans' witches' kettle. The entire population of the USA would doubtless approve. Now, now we, we've had over, troops overseas nonstop. Ever since. We, we've had troops in Germany ever since. We still have troops in Germany. We have huge air bases in Germany. 
Goebbels even said earlier in the document that Germany will still be under Allied occupation, and that's that's correct. There are still tens of thousands of American soldiers in Germany, and for that matter, in Italy. Germany is still under Allied application, uh, occupation to this day. There's no doubt. And, and there's no more Cold War. So what's the use for it now? What's the well, what's the excuse for American troops in Germany since 1992? They call it joint training, but I have to assume that they're there as a sort of implicit threat, a very subtle threat. They have a little understanding going with the German people that if nationalists ever present the threat of taking back Germany, the Americans are there to crush them. Well, well basically, Germany is occupied. The continent has been occupied by American forces since 1945. On behalf of the Jew. Absolutely. The entire population of the USA would doubtless approve. Since, and not, well, well, let me say something. If we announced that all of our troops were coming home, the president would probably be hated because there'd be 2 million troops in America, former troops in America, who are out of work now. Since there would be no other military power on the continent, in the best case, 60 British divisions would face 600 Soviet divisions. Bolshevism, and, and he's given American men way too much credit and taking America out of the picture, right? Bolshevism certainly would not have been idle during the period. A labor government, perhaps even a radical half-Bolshevist one, would be in power in England. Well, that's exactly what happened. That, that's exactly what happened in England after the war. Under the pressure of public opinion whipped up by the Jewish press and a people weary of war, it would soon announce its lack of interest in Europe. How fast such things can happen is clear from the example of Poland today. The so-called Third World War would likely be short, and our continent would be at the feet of the mechanized robots from the steppes. That would be an unfortunate situation for Bolshevism. It would without doubt leap over to England and set the land of classic democracy ablaze. The Iron Curtain would fall once more over this vast tragedy of nations. Over the next five years, hundreds of millions of slaves would build tanks, fighters, and bombers. Then the general assault on the USA would begin. The Western Hemisphere, which despite lying accusations we have never threatened, would then be in the gravest danger. One day those in the USA will curse the day in which a long-forgotten American president released a communique at a conference at Yalta, which will long have sunk into legend. So, so he basically, he, he knows that the Soviet designs were on the entire world. And he's basically foreseeing the same exact thing that kept Americans in fear for for 50 years after the war, or, or for 40 years after the war. What was right up through the entire Reagan's entire two terms, uh, Americans were led to believe that war with the USSR was imminent at any moment. When really it was never imminent at all, because the Jewish bankers controlled both sides of the both sides right. of, the, of, the, of the world. That served as a very useful distraction to keep people in their attention 
focused on some conflict that's just around the corner, the rapture's just around the corner, the end of the world's just around the corner, nuclear holocaust is just around the corner. None of that is just around the corner. But in the meanwhile, 30, 40 million aliens are flooding into the homeland. Well, well right. I, I wrote um, an editorial, and it's a real short editorial, um, for the October Saxon Messenger, the Saxon Messenger being two months behind. I'm sorry, I can't help that. But But the title of my editorial is Bolshevism after 95 years. And the Saxon Messenger for October will be out this week. And and in my editorial, which is already published on the Saxon Messenger website, it has been all week, I, I make the point that we were never going to go to war with the Soviet Union, that both sides were controlled by the same international Jewish bankers. The Soviet Union, for its entire history, was controlled by the international bankers. The proof of that is very easy to see when you look at the dismantling of the Soviet Union in the Yeltsin administration. Understand that Lawrence Summers and certain other Jewish communists from Harvard University were hired to help privatize Russian industrial assets at the end of the Soviet Union, and that when all the smoke was cleared, 10 or 12 Jews ended up owning Russia. It's very clear who controlled the entire Soviet Union for all those times, once you understand that when it was privatized, Jews ended up owning the whole thing. That's because Jews controlled it all along. There's no in name, the Soviet Union has nominally dissolved, but for all intents and purposes, the same little tribe of people are still in power. Well, well, the point of my article, Bolshevism After 95 Years, is that Bolshevism has always been with us. Bolshevism is still with us. The USSR was used as a huge distraction so that Bolshevism, Bolshevism so that the, the Communist Manifesto could be implemented in Western law in every Western nation, while the military threat of the USSR was used as a huge distraction. And that's exactly what happened. We, the USSR suffered, the, the, I'm sorry, old Christian Russia, the Russian Empire, fell to a two or three year Bolshevik revolution, while the entire West was Bolshevized over a period of 100 years. And we are. We're a communist nation today. And we weren't paying attention because we were more concerned about the, these external threats that were being promoted to us in the media incessantly. But we kept waiting for the Red Army to land on our shores when we weren't paying any attention to the Jewish Bolsheviks that were leading the Cultural Revolution in the 60s. Well, well right, exactly. The Red Army already had a huge fifth column in every American Jew. And we've already become a communist nation. That's why the wall fell. The wall didn't fall because Russia suddenly um, turned to freedom and liberty. The wall fell because the rest of Europe and, and America became communist nations o over that 50-year period, and there was no longer any reason for a wall. The bankers own us. 
the West capitulated till the wall became superfluous. Absolutely. But the West never capitulated on paper. They capitulated year after year in, reg- in, in legislation. So we were worried about Ivan storming the shores. We weren't paying attention to Abby Hoffman agitating the youth. Well, look at, look at the outcome today. Look at who's sitting in the White House. Look at how much money you're paying in taxes. Look at the implementation of Obamacare, implementation of Obamacare which is right around the corner, which is going to take another huge chunk out of your tax check. And, and, and look at the, um, the result of the redistribution of wealth in the elevation of the Negro and the Mexican in society, the, the basest elements of society have risen to the top, while the average white it, it is um, on the verge of poverty. Well, if I recall, Lenin remarked, quote, the way to crush the bourgeoisie is to grind them between the millstones of taxation and inflation. And I think the, the American regime understands this very well. Taxation and inflation are the orders of the day. Well, well, that's exactly what's been going on for 100 years, and, and it's been very effective. And Christians are still worshiping the Jews. The so-called third, I'm sorry, I've already read that paragraph. The democracies are not up to dealing with the Bolshevist system. Well, the last 50 years has proven that too. Since they use, actually the last 100 years, since they use entirely different methods, they are as helpless against it as were the bourgeois parties in Germany over against the communists before we took power. Uh, Of course, if any political system, any any political system doesn't identify clearly its enemies. It, it can't be successful. In contrast to the USA, the Soviet system needs to take no regard for public opinion or its people's living standard. It therefore has no need to fear American economic competition, not to mention its military. Even with a war to end, as Roosevelt and Churchill imagine, the plutocratic, in other words, it's America one, the plutocratic countries would be defenseless before the competition from the Soviet Union on the world market, unless they decided to greatly reduce wages and living standards. Now, that did not come true with the Soviet Union, but it did become true of communist China. But if they were to do that, they would not be able to resist Bolshevist agitation. However things turn out, Stalin would always be the winner and Roosevelt and Churchill the losers. And, and, and yeah, you know something? We didn't really lower our wage and living standards up through the 1960s, and we still fell to the Jewish Bolsheviks rioting in the streets of America. Well, we still fell to, to the sexual revolution to, to the, um, the hippie revolution, to the feminist revolution, and all the other revolutions, social revolutions of the 1960s and 70s. They more or less abandoned class as the central point in their platform, and instead they adopted this ragtag, hodgepodge coalition of sexual and social and racial issues, and they, they 
went out and they recruited degenerates from all walks of life. And, and class was no longer the main issue. The main issue was anything that weakens society, homosexuals, bisexuals, transgendered freaks, and feminists, and race mixers, and people that were just fringe weirdos and lunatics, basically. But the communist movement in America seems to have made class a, a second or third issue, a distant third. The Anglo-American war policy has reached a dead end. They have called up the spirits and can no longer get rid of them. Our predictions, beginning with Poland, are beginning to be confirmed by a remarkable series of current events. One, and, and Goebbels had a lot of hope, right? One can only smile when the English and Americans forge plans for the year 2000. They will be happy if they survive until 1950. No thinking Englishman fails to see this today. The British Prime Minister wore a Russian fur coat at the Yalta conference. This aroused unhappy comment in the English public. When the London news agencies later reported that it was a Canadian fur coat, no one believed them. People saw in the matter a symbol of England's subordination to the Kremlin's will. What happened to the days when England had an important, even decisive say in world affairs? And, and I really can't comment too much on, on, on um, post-war England. I think that Anthony Eden was the prime minister. I don't know very much about that period in England. It, well, it seems to me that the English people became very cynical rather than actually revolting against their leadership. I know in post-war England, well, Churchill was horrified that he was defeated. He felt betrayed. He was disgusted with the British people. Of course, he came back later, but that aside, there was still rationing in post-war England for at least, I think, three or four, if not five or six years. So things there was no real boom in post-war England, as we had in this country between, you know, 46 and 48, with the GIs returning with all their saved-up money and the housing boom, the construction boom, the Depression finally ending. England in the post-war years was a pretty miserable place, at least that's my understanding. What happened today to the days when England had an important, even decisive say in world affairs? An influential American senator recently remarked, England is only a small appendix to Europe. His comrades treat it that way already. Has it deserved any better? At a dramatic moment in European history, it declared war against the Reich, unleashing a world, unleashing a world conflagration that not only went out of control, but threatens to leave England itself in ruins, and, and that it did, right? A tiny, in, in, in economic ruins, anyway. A tiny extension of Germany into purely German territories to the east was sufficient ground to see a threat to the European balance of power. In the resulting war, England found it necessary to throw out its 200-year-old policy of the balance of power. Now a world power has entered Europe, that begins to the east in Vladivostok and will not rest in the west until it has incorporated Great Britain itself into its dictatorship. And there I think Goebbels underestimated the amount of, of Jewish control over world affairs, that the Jews were actually running the Soviet Union. The Soviet Union would have what the bankers wanted it to have, and, and they would have no more. It is more than naive for the British Prime Minister to plan for the pol political and social status of the Reich in the year 2000. In the coming years and decades, England will probably have other concerns. 
it will have to fight desperately to maintain a small portion of its former power in the world. And, and that's all true. It received the first blows in the First World War, and now during the Second World War faces the final coup de grace. And, and Goebbels saw the end of the English Empire, and, and righteously so. And, and I get the feeling that he saw the end of the English Empire, regardless of the outcome of the war. And, well, and we, we see that that's true today. Bill, can we rightly say that Britain didn't lose its empire in the sense that it was taken from them. They lost it in the sense that they just gave up on it and gave it away. Well, you, you know, on in the public perception, Britain lost its empire. But behind the scenes, did the bankers who were the primary um, motivators and, and the primary reason why Britain had an empire did the bankers really lose their empire? No. Britain lost its empire and its luster and, and its status in the public perception. Britain lost it, its... Um, the, the British government lost a lot of its power overseas, but the bankers really were the wielders, were the holders of that power anyway. So, so, so everything that, that the, the way things appear on the surface aren't really how they are, right? It, it's really just a charade. Britain lost its empire. Yes. Did the bankers lose their control over most of those places where where the former Britain British Empire ruled? No, not at all. One can imagine things turning out differently, but now it is too late. The Fuhrer made numerous proposals to London, the last time four weeks before the war began. He proposed that German and British foreign policy now work together, that the Reich would respect England's sea powers, England would respect the Reich's land power, and that parity would exist in the air. Both powers would join in guaranteeing world peace, and the British Empire would be a critical component of that peace. Germany would even be ready to defend that empire with military means if it were necessary. Under such conditions, Bolshevism would have been confined to its original breeding grounds. It would have been sealed off from the rest of the world. Now Bolshevism is at the Oder River. Everything depends on the steadfastness of German soldiers. Will Bolshevism be pushed back to the east, or will its fury flood over Western Europe? That is the war situation. The Alta Communique does not change things in the least. Things depend only on the, this crisis of human culture. It will be solved by us, or it will not be solved at all. Those are the alternatives. Britain, of course, in a peace agreement with Germany, would have retained its empire. And let me clarify myself about what I mean about the difference between Britain losing its empire and the bankers actually maintaining the control that they had under a different political situation, which is actually what happened. When Britain lost its empire, basically the bankers were dispensed with the English people. That's what that was about. They didn't need Britain anymore. They had American forces now at their full disposal to project and keep their interests around the world. When Britain lost its empire, it was really a sign of the bankers no longer needing 
England. They no longer needed Britain. The living standard declined sharply in Britain, and now Britain is being flooded with aliens, just like the rest of the world, just like the rest of the white world. The bankers, when Britain lost its empires, it was only a sign that the bankers no longer needed Britain. That's all it was. But the bankers retained their control. So in the sense that the British Empire fell in regards to, you know, um, they, they lost all of their farms in, say, Kenya and Nigeria and Rhodesia, and the average British person on the, on the ground, he either had to flee or die or fight for his life. And, of course, you know, they've been driven out of basically all of those lands. But the Jews still run all the central banks and all these newly created, quote, republics. Well, well I mean, the bankers used Britain to, to gain their empire, their empire. It was called the British Empire, but it was their empire. The proof of that is in who controlled it later, when the bankers gave up on Britain. That, that when, when the bankers, they, you know, they, they needed the flower of English manhood in order to gain the empire, in order to subjugate all of the world's backwards peoples so that they could loot and pillage the resources of India and, and, and all of the places that Hong Kong, all of the places where the British Navy sailed. After World War II, America had been built up into that world force, that world military force that would keep the, um, the rest of the world in check where they needed it for international commerce. We still are. We still fulfill that role. The only reason why we went into Libya was because the bankers decided that it was long enough that it hadn't been under their control. The only reason why we conquered Iraq was for the same reason. And, and Zionism has a lot to do with it, but the Zionists and the bankers have been in bed with each other for 100 years, too. I, I mean, they're all the same Jews. And there's a lot that goes on behind the scenes that we don't know, that we can't know, but there's no doubt that they aren't doing the, the will of the same international bankers, and that that's why America is on the hook. And we will remain so for as long as we worship the Jew at the polls, at, in, in our churches, in, in our daily lives. Go on. We've become the enforcers, the muscle for the world's oldest crime ring. And, and it was England for, for 150, 200 years. And now they're building up China just in case America becomes too weak to continue on with that role. Well, well, I mean, a, a carcass can only be eaten by parasites so long before it just caves in, right? Mm -hmm. There's only so much meat on the bones, right? There's only so many seats at the table. Well, well I mean, how, how long? England was exhausted after World War II, after fighting two world wars. How many, how many good men did England lose in two world wars? It, it was time to be replaced. It was time, and America was the replacement. It was the obvious replacement, right? And and now we have bases all over the world instead of the English. And now American boys go off and, and die in all of these countries that the bankers want to conquer or contain rather than the English. 
We Germans are not the only ones who say this. I'm sorry. I don't know if I, I, I don't know where we got um, distracted. I don't know if I finished the last paragraph or not. One can imagine things turning out differently, but now it is too late. The Fuhrer made numerous proposals to London. You, you know, this is historical that Hitler wanted peace. And this is a historical document which proves it. And, and there are many other historical documents that prove it. And the mainstream media, of course, never portrayed any of this, right? Correct. And you did read this paragraph. I have uh, I have my place mark on the next paragraph. We Germans okay. are not the only ones. We, we Germans are not the only ones who say this. Every thinking person knows that today, as so often in the past, the German people have a European mission. We may not lose our courage, even though the mission brings with it enormous pain and suffering. The foolish know-it-alls have brought the world no more than once to the edge of the abyss. At the last moment, the sight of the terrifying misery alarmed humanity enough for it to take the decisive step backwards at the critical moment. That will be the case this time as well. We have lost a great deal in this war. About all we have left are our military forces and our ideals. We may not give these up. They are, the very founda- they are the foundations of our existence and of the fulfillment of our historical obligations. It is hard and terrible, but also honorable. We were given at our we were given our duty because we alone had the necessary character and steadfastness. Any other people would have collapsed. We, however, like Atlas, carry the weight of the world on our shoulders and do not doubt. And 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 Goebbels, and, and this is righteously, show, righteously so, that they saw that, I don't, they didn't see the Bolsheviks in Russia and the international bankers as necessarily the same enemy. However, Adolf Hitler warned over and over again in Mein Kampf that world, global, the global commerce and that communism were working together, that they were really one and the same, that bankers pushed the idea of international commerce so that they could spread communism everywhere. And there's a podcast that I did. Brian, I don't remember if you were there or not that evening. There's a podcast that I did. It's on the Mein Kampf Project website, and it and it has... um several thousand downloads. And I'm trying to get the, um, I'm trying to find it now, actually. December 5th, 2010, Adolf Hitler on globalism. It's at the bottom of the front page of the Mein Kampf Project. And I pulled out all of the citations from Mein Kampf where Adolf Hitler warned us that international commerce, that globalism would lead to international communism, that the communists and the the globalists, the bankers, were all working hand-in-hand to enslave the entire world. And and basically, if we we couldn't see that when Hitler was warning us of it 80 years ago, we sure as hell should be able to see it today. And Hitler had the warnings. He was warning us about it. And, and and for that reason, 
and, and that's just one reason, but they're all related. For that reason, the Jews had to destroy Adolf Hitler, and then they had to destroy National Socialist Germany. Because, and we see that reflected here in this part of Goebbels' speech, because they saw themselves as the last defenders of freedom in the world. Americans think that they're free. They're not free as long as the Federal Reserve exists. Americans cannot be free as long as the Jews print all of our money and profit from it. We're slaves. And since Hitler was a watchman on the wall, they have to take out the watchman because they intend on taking over the city. Well, well absolutely. The key to German success, understanding Germany's success, is the key to our, uh, our economic freedom and, and we don't have it. And, and, of course, we as identity Christians, we should understand that Yahweh has, our God, has a grand plan. And, and we have to wait it out because vengeance is his. But the understanding of German success in the 1930s and the understanding of Adolf Hitler's policies is an understanding of, of, of Jewish treachery and, and, and of the evils of Jewish capitalism and why we are enslaved today. And only once you understand all of those pieces do you understand that National Socialist Germany actually was the last free nation on earth. Free from the shackles of the Jew. And they understood that. And they saw themselves like Atlas carrying the weight of the world on our shoulders, as Goebbels just stated. They knew that they were the last hope of freedom in the world. But now in America, we have the Jewish ideal of freedom, which means the, the fulsome street fair with men walking down the street in thongs, and they call that freedom. But if you want to question the hopes of cost, that you're, that's not freedom. That's hey. Well, well, right. The the freedom of the founding fathers, what was freedom from the oppression of the nobles, what which the the bankers only replaced the nobles after the French Revolution anyway. It, it was freedom from from the unequal laws of the nobles. What were and and that's the equality expressed in in the Declaration of Independence, where all men are created equal. The intent there is that all men are created equal in the eyes of the law. That noblemen wouldn't be um, excused of their crimes simply because they're, they're from the noble classes. And and basically, the the laws were very unequally enforced until that time. And and. That was the part of the liberty that they were seeking was the liberty from tyrants, which is what that leads to. Now, the liberty, the idea of freedom that this nation was built on what was an economic freedom and a freedom from tyranny and oppression and taxation, of course, but an economic freedom where men could, with fair weights and measures, could ensure their own prosperity through the works of their hands and, and keep that prosperity. And, and the Jewish ideal of freedom is, like you just explained, freedom to be a pervert, freedom to, to um, be a sexual deviant, a pervert, 
freedom to, to corrupt society, and, and the Jewish ideal of freedom comes right from the mind of Satan. So, so that's not a, a, a surprise. That, that's wherever the Jew goes, you find pornography, you find decadence, you find um, heavy drug use, that you find drunkenness, vice, prostitution, gambling. It, it's, that's what the Jew brings with him everywhere. That, that's not the idea of freedom. Where the Jew reigns, there's no freedom from taxation, freedom from corruption, freedom from inflation. You're not free to raise your children on your land as you see fit. You're free to be a pervert and a deviant and, and give your children over to a rabbi to be molested. That's their idea of freedom. Well, right. That's what the Jew really wants to liberate is, is women and children from their undergarments. So National Socialist Germany rightly saw itself as the last bastion of true liberty in the world. And they were. Because we're not free. We're still under the economic slavery imposed on us by the Federal Reserve Act of 1913. That's when American men should have been marching on Washington which, with pitchforks and skies. The last paragraph of Joseph Goebbels' speech. Germany will not be occupied by its enemies in the year 2000. And, and he, he's um, being optimistic here, right? He had a lot of faith. They had a lot of true faith and sincere faith. And, and, and Randall Bightwork would see this as propaganda, but he's wrong because reading all of the speeches of Goebbels and the speeches of Hitler through the end of the war, you could see that these men believe their cause, and believe that justice would prevail. And it, it didn't in Germany's case, but that's only because God has another plan. Germany will not be occupied by its enemies in the year 2000. The German nation will be the intellectual leader of civilized humanity. We are earning that right in this war. This world struggle with our enemies will live on only as a bad dream in people's memories. Our children and their children will erect monuments to their fathers and mothers for the pain they suffered. For the, no, well, today they erect monuments to, to the Jews for the pain they never suffered, right? For the stoic steadfastness which they bore all, for the bravery they showed, for the heroism with which they fought, for the loyalty with which they held to their Fuhrer, and his ideals in difficult times. Our hopes will come true in their world, and our ideals will be reality. Imagine that, a world free of Jewish usury and Jewish vice and decadence. We must never for forget that when we see the storms of this wild age reflected in the eyes of our children, let us act so that we will earn their eternal blessings, not their curses. And, and that's the end of the world 2000. Joseph Goebbels was very insightful. He was right about a lot of things. And his optimism and, and his um, misunderstanding of, of the amount of control the Jew could exert over the West through the media and through the churches led him to be wrong about a lot of things. And it seems that National Socialist Germany was a veritable paradise and almost heaven on earth. And I suppose other people have different visions of heaven, though. Well, well, right, and I wouldn't want to go into some of those visions because they're pretty bad. 
it well, seems that America, America today is quite the playground for the Jew, isn't it? This is a Jewish paradise. Well, well, when American males, and I'm trying to think of the worst example I could possibly think of, and, and, and the worst example I could possibly think of is in Seattle about six years ago. When American males die in emergency rooms because they've allowed horses or they've encouraged horses to violate their rectums and they bleed to death on hospital floors and, and, and nobody is outraged that such things can happen in the modern world that we've sunk to such lows. Well, well, then, well, when American males are allowed to walk down Fifth Avenue in thongs in front of your children and, and, and proudly profess their depravity, I mean, there's a million examples we could come up with of, of, of what, 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 what Jewish heaven is about. Jewish heaven is Sodom and Gomorrah. The Jews are the descendants of the creators of Sodom and Gomorrah. The Jews are the descendants of the Canaanites who create Sodom and Gomorrah everywhere they go. And this is the world that we live in. And, and this is what Americans choose to live in because they worship the Jew. And National Socialist Germany is the last nation on earth to actually successfully, for a time, stand up to Satan. We might say for those in America who hunger and thirst for righteousness, America is a hell on earth. Well, well absolutely. But, but that's what... That, that's how we're told it would be at this time. It's part of our punishment. It's the last part of our punishment. We will prevail only with Christ. Absolutely. Okay, thank you for listening, and, and we'll be back here next week. Uh, I wanted to present a couple of papers today, and, and um, I, I wanted to present... The idea is that Christianity is nationalism, and that Christianity is also socialism, but it's not Marxism. Marxism is not socialism. Socialism originally has many positive aspects to it. If you want to see Christian socialism, read Acts chapter 2, verses 45 through 47, and read Acts chapter 4, verses 32 through 37, and bear in mind 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 10. And all of those ideas were Adolf Hitler's ideas of socialism. And we'll discuss that here next week. Thank you for joining me, Brian. Thank you for having me on. Yahweh bless. Good night. Praise Yahweh. Thank you for listening.